Are you eager to learn more about law? Me too. Hello, my name is Sarah Chayo. Welcome to A Question of Law, a podcast created for law enthusiasts who want to increase their knowledge and deepen their understanding of the law. Our guests, legal professionals chosen from an array of legal proficiencies, will explain to us the fundamental principles of a specific topics in the areas of expertise. Then, they will educate us on new legal developments in their fields in the form of a recent case law or new legislation. They'll share with us their opinions on the ramifications of these latest advances. Finally, we'll talk about their career path and uncover some great insights about their lives and experiences. So, if you want to feed your curiosity, enrich your mind and get inspired. Take a break, sit back, and remain tuned in. In June 2016, 47 years after joining the European Union, the United Kingdom voted by a small margin to leave it. Since ongoing tricky negotiations have taken place between the British government and the representatives of the EU. In 2018, Two years after the vote, a withdrawal agreement was settled only to organise the condition of the UK departure from the EU and to provide an 11 months long period to prepare for the future. As a driving factor of Brexit was to curb the influx of EU workers, it was almost inevitable that the UK would leave the single market as it requires free movement of people, goods, services and capital. However, it is still possible to negotiate trade agreements to avoid or limit the application of tariffs. Those negotiations have proven to be as difficult as the first ones, and the deadline by which the agreements need to be struck is coming up fast. To avoid a hard Brexit or no-deal Brexit, deals need to be struck passed into law and ratified by both parliaments before the 31st of December 2020. Yet, fundamental divergences remain, and some have implications much farther reaching than economic drawbacks. On this episode, we will discuss with our guest, Marcus Cleaver, the consequences of Brexit on UK law and British sovereignty. So, let's start that conversation. Hello, Marcus, and welcome to A Question of Law. I'm very proud to have you on this podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Sarah. Marcus, you have been a legal professional for the past 10 years and have already contributed to the legal community in a unique manner. After qualifying with an LLM in international law, you went on to become a researcher and a lecturer at the University of Huddersfield. Then, you worked for the National Archive before becoming a legal editor for Westlaw. Those achievements on their own are already remarkable, but it's not all. You do a lot more amazing stuff. You are a podcaster and a YouTuber. Your YouTube channel, Marcus Cleaver, has more than 20,000 subscribers. It aims at helping law students revise different topics of law and get valuable tips for their exams. In parallel, you present your podcast named UK Law Weekly, on which you analyse all the Supreme Court's decisions. So far, you have summarised and explained 226 cases. 
The reviews on both those platforms are consistently praising the quality of your work and some of your videos have been seen more than 79,000 times. So to some extent, you are an online legal celebrity. On this podcast, we will be talking about the implication of Brexit on UK law and I will be asking you whether or not the UK will get its sovereignty back. But first, to emulate the style of your video, Marcus, I will start by asking you to define the terms of the topic. Thus, could you please tell us what the European Union is and what it stands for? Yeah, of course. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. That's very kind of you. Um, I think when I'm thinking about the EU, I try to sort of think about it in terms of its historical context. So really, the European Union came about after the end of the Second World War. And the way that I think about it is there were two key aims that were um, there for the origins of the European Union. The first one was peace. When World War I ended, the aim was to punish Germany and the losing side. And ultimately, that led to World War II. When the end of World War II came about, the aim was to not punish the losing side this time, but to see them as part of an inclusive Europe. And the European Union was one of the key ways of achieving that. Part of that was also included with trade as well. So thinking about how we're trading between nations and how that economic unity can also build a political unity as well. And so the European Union started as a trading bloc between France, Germany and a few other countries aimed at basically trading in coal and steel. Over the years, the European Union then expanded greatly, not only in terms of the number of member states, but also in terms of what the European Union was doing. It was no longer just a trading block for coal and steel, but also looked at other areas as well, such as nuclear energy and regulating things like fisheries that might have been disputed between countries before the European Union really came about. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of where we are today with it. We see that with things like the four freedoms. So the freedom of goods, services, capital and people. Mm -hmm. And that unity in the European Mm -hmm. Union is something that is still with us today very much. Mm -hmm. I think that the best way to think about it politically, the European Union is it's almost sort of like a movement towards a federal system that you might see in the United States, for example. So Mm -hmm. obviously, countries like France and Germany and Portugal, they're not as closely related as, say, California, Florida, Georgia, those types of states. But Mm -hmm. we see with the European Union that there is a movement towards that federal system where the countries are working closely together and there's a united system of laws and shared values as well that exist between those nation states. Well, that is an interesting point of view. I thought that the willingness to establish a federation had diminished after the failed attempt to draw an EU constitution and the inaction regarding the army. But I agree with you on the shared value and the shared laws. Regarding those laws, could you actually tell our listeners how EU law is made and how it's been implemented in the UK? Yes, of course, I'd be happy to. I think that there are sort of three main institutions within the European Union that are responsible for EU law. So I'd say that the Commission is maybe the most important one. They often come up with some of the key ideas for which laws should go through and be passed. And they're often the ones making the proposals. Mm -hmm. And then we also have the Council as well. So they're also having an input and a vote on those um, new laws and regulations as well. 
And of course, the European Parliament plays a big role as well. That was a relatively recent um, incorporation into the European Union. And uh, we have members of the European Parliament who are directly elected to that body to help to pass laws and uh, offer citizens of the European Union a direct input into what laws should go through and which should be passed. In terms of the actual laws themselves, I kind of split these up into two types. So we've got the directly effective laws, so things like regulations and decisions. And as soon as these are passed, or certainly as soon as they come into force, then they are binding on the member states and um, dependent on the parties who are concerned or in terms of the decisions, the parties who they are directed to those laws are going to be applicable to them and in force. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we also have things like directives, which are instead implemented into domestic law. So you might have an area that is actually still very different between member states. So you might think of something like pensions law, where pensions in the UK are very different to pensions in Poland or pensions in Greece. And so the aim with directives is to set a standard across the European Union and for then countries to actually change their own system of, say, pensions or something else in order to meet those standards. So um, regulations and decisions are direct from the EU, whereas directives offer the opportunity for member states to actually implement those laws. Mm -hmm. So now that the UK has left the EU, could you tell us a bit more about what the withdrawal agreement as amended in 2020 and the accompanying documents entail? And is there still any sticking points? Yeah, it's a little bit complicated, but basically the withdrawal agreement can be thought of as an international treaty that exists between the remainder of the EU and the United Kingdom. And the treaty is just really trying to set out the basics for the UK being able to leave. So thinking about some of those sticky issues that might come up as part of leaving the European Union, such as the finances. So should the UK have to still contribute to the EU budget? Obviously, if the UK does leave immediately and just didn't pay anything, it would leave quite a shortfall in the EU budget. So it deals with things like that, as well as important things to people as well. So citizens' rights, if the UK just left immediately, then you are potentially left in a situation where EU citizens in the UK and UK citizens living within the EU are suddenly in a very precarious position. So the idea behind the withdrawal agreement is just to provide a little bit of a safety net, really, I think. Um, We talk about like having a transition period and That is something that ends on the 31st of December, Mm -hmm. at which point we'll sort of move into a new future where the UK is no longer a part of the EU whatsoever. And some of those transitional provisions will end. Mm. I think at this stage, it's probably a little bit important, Sarah, to also talk a little bit about sort of no deal as well and how that compares to the withdrawal agreement. I'm only saying this now because um, I think it sort of it seems a bit contradictory to say that is there still a possibility of a no deal Brexit when there is this withdrawal agreement? It doesn't sound like that's a no deal situation, but really it comes back to the idea that the withdrawal agreement is just about trying to sort of get that transitional period where we're having the UK leaving the EU. It doesn't really tell us much about the UK's relationship with the EU after that point. Mm. And so um, that's why there is still these questions about no deal, despite there being this withdrawal agreement that is agreed between the EU and the UK. Yes, absolutely. So 
as you were saying, until the end of the transitional period on the 31st of December 2020, nothing will change. EU law will still apply as usual. But what will happen with all the European instruments or actually European law after that date? Well, it starts really with a single piece of legislation and a particular provision within that legislation, and that is Section 3 of the European Union Withdrawal Act from 2018. Now, we've already talked a little bit earlier about directives Mm. and how they are implemented into domestic law. So for the purposes of directives, there isn't really much to do. They're already a part of UK law through their implementation and their transposition. It's a little bit different when it comes to things like the regulations and the decisions that we also talked about, because these are really within the EU domain. And so there's a question about do they just remain outside of the UK once the UK has left? And Section 3 of the Act says that the answer to that question is no, they're actually going to be brought within the UK law. And this is having a new status of law within the UK. So normally we would just have UK acts and UK secondary instruments. We now have a new branch of law, which is called UK retained law. Mm And essentially what it does is scrapes all of those regulations and all of those decisions from the EU and makes them a part of UK law. Now, there is an important uh, distinction to be made here because while after the 31st of December, the EU will go on changing and updating its own laws, in the UK, those are potentially going to remain static or it does give the opportunity for the UK Parliament to amend those regulations and those decisions as they exist within UK law. Yes, and there are many of them, obviously. There's absolutely hundreds of them. So you can go on to either Westlaw mm-hmm. or onto legislation.gov.uk and you can see that they've got absolutely hundreds of them just across the whole website. That It's been this huge operation to just get them onto the, onto the website in the first place never mind thinking about how they're actually going to be changed. And we're already seeing proposals come through by way of statutory Mm -hmm. instruments that are seeking to change these retained EU laws. And it's going to be, I mean, a very substantial task in terms of keeping them up to date as well once the UK does leave. Sure. And these laws must be passed very quickly, so the usual scrutiny might be at risk. Now, more specifically, what will the ramifications of Brexit be for EU citizens living and working in the UK and the British citizens living abroad, the trade of goods and services and the financial industry? Uh, So there are quite a few questions you're asking there, Sarah. So I think let's try and go through each of them in turn. I I think the first one that you asked me about was EU citizens. And the way that I tend to think about this was... Um, in terms of sort of three different periods. So up to the 31st of December, there's going to sort of operate as usual. Like we talked about with the withdrawal agreement, one of the key aims was protecting the rights of EU citizens. So for this period, it's still okay for EU citizens who are living in the UK and UK citizens who are living abroad to essentially exist as they currently are. But there is an aim within the next period of time, which would be sort of into 2021, I would say roughly June time for those UK citizens who are living abroad and EU citizens over here to apply for some form of residency. 
So the UK has its own scheme for um, EU residents who are living over here. The EU settlement scheme. And all of the other countries and member states of the European Union all have their own schemes for UK citizens who are wishing to remain in those countries after Brexit. I think that the most interesting period kind of comes after that registration period ends. So someone who maybe wants to move to Italy in 2022 is going to be in a potentially difficult situation because at that point, it really depends on what agreements uh, exist between the UK and the various member states. Essentially, you can think of it like at the in the UK at the moment, there are sort of immigration agreements between the UK and various third party countries like India or Australia or Canada or any other country in the world. And really, UK citizens at that point are going to face a similar situation when they travel abroad. If they want to go and live in Italy for a period of time, then they're going to be subjected to Italian rules on immigration unless there is an agreement between either the UK and the EU on this subject or between the UK and individual member states. Yes, and unless those specific agreements are signed, EU citizens will be treated like other foreigners arriving in the UK and will require work visa and sponsors to be able to work here. Yes, I think that the second point that you asked was about, um, was it about free trade? Yes, the trade of goods and services. That's that's another interesting one. (laughs) I think that we've talked about free trade as being one of those kind of for freedoms that exist within the EU. So the freedom of goods and freedom of services and capital as well as being, you know, the core institutions of the EU and something that the UK won't be able to benefit from once it leaves. And I think that the reality of that is that whereas there are no sort of customs borders or really any tariffs between the trade between the UK and the European Union at the moment, In the future, it's going to be a little bit different because there are going to be tariffs and borders and customs barriers that do come up between the UK if a company is exporting goods to the EU Mm -hmm. or indeed if a company that exists within Germany or Denmark wants to export goods back to the UK. And that's potentially going to sort of create a great deal of expense and possibly time delay um, if they are subjected to checks on the border. And we've already seen this a little bit during this year. There were sort of tests done at sort of some of the main importation sites around Dover, and it was creating sort of these huge log jams. And that was really just a partial test of what it's going to be like. Whether it's going to be the same in the future is going to be difficult to tell. There's obviously going to be attempts by the government to deal with, say, technological solutions to try and remove some of those burdens. But realistically, it's just not going to be as easy to actually trade goods and services between the UK and the EU. Finally, I think coming on to that point about finances, I think that this is potentially an interesting one. Um, In the short term, I think we're going to see potentially damage to the stability of the pound compared to the euro and other strong currencies as well, such as the Australian dollar and the US dollar. And there's also going to be a longer term impact as well on investment in the uh, UK. So drawing back to that point we just made about the trade of goods and services between the UK and the EU, if that's going to be problematic, then we're not going to be seeing as much investment in UK industry as we might have seen otherwise when we were part of that larger trading block. On the other hand, I think it's important to note that there are a lot of EU regulations and rules around finances. And 
in a post-Brexit world, we are going to have an opportunity to make some of our own rules around finances and other things. So that is potentially going to be an interesting development. And I think maybe one of the key things to look out for in the world of finance is where do we think about the centre of finance or the home of finance as being within Europe as a whole? At the moment, I think most people would say that London is the home of that. We have the London Stock Exchange, which is really only comparable with something like the New York Stock Exchange. But I think post-Brexit, London is potentially going to struggle in terms of maintaining that reputation as the centre of finance. And you're going to see a concerted effort by the EU to make somewhere like Brussels the centre of finance in Europe instead. Mm -hmm. Or Paris, maybe. Yes. <laughs> so regarding the Northern Ireland Protocol, which has been a difficult point in the negotiations, um, could you tell us a bit more about uh, what has been agreed and why the government tried to redefine that agreement? Yeah, I think that Northern Ireland Protocol is one of those things where it, it can appear as quite complicated, but I, I don't think it's actually as complicated as maybe it's made out to be. The reason that we have a special situation in Northern Ireland is because it obviously has a land border with the Republic of Ireland, which is still going to be a member of the European Union. The Republic being its own sovereign state that is going to remain part of the EU. And normally what would happen in that situation is there's not really any sort of barriers that exist between the north and the south of Ireland. The reason for that is partially, at least, because of the Good Friday Agreement that was agreed back in 1998 in order to try and resolve the troubles in Northern Ireland, um, especially around sectarian violence. And not having borders between the north and the south was a really important way of sort of saying that, you know, this angry angst between the two countries and these, this violence that had occurred between the north and the south should not really remain anymore and people should be free to travel between the north and the south. Brexit obviously creates problems there because you don't want a situation where, say, something is easier to create and make in Britain to a lower standard than the EU expects. And then someone going across to Northern Ireland and simply exporting it to the south of Ireland and then it being part of that EU free trade zone. And so the aim of the Northern Ireland Protocol is essentially to create a border within the Irish Sea that separates Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom. And that's potentially problematic because it's obviously going to create another customs barrier like we talked about down in Dover, and that's potentially going to be expensive in its own way. Um, but it also cuts Northern Ireland off a little bit politically and economically from the UK. And there's going to be sort of questions about how that might affect, you know, relations with Northern Ireland. And also if there's going to be a question about whether Northern Ireland either becomes independent or indeed wishes to join the rest of the Republic of Ireland. I think that one of the interesting things that we're talking about, and as we're recording this, this is something that is being debated in the House of Lords, is the Internal Market Bill. And this would essentially allow the UK Parliament, or UK ministers certainly, to essentially breach the Northern Ireland Protocol and therefore breach international law. And that's something that's been relatively controversial um, and will be interesting to see what the House of Lords sort of says about this. The government argues it's basically just a safety net, okay. but realistically, breaking international law is going to damage relations with the European Union and also even threaten the Good, Good Friday Agreement that we talked about and potentially peace within Northern Ireland itself. I think it's something that's especially interesting at the moment with the election of 
Joe Biden as the 46th President of the United States, Joe Biden has often spoke about the importance of the Good Friday Agreement and maintaining that. And so if the UK wants to, say, do a trade deal with the United States, it's potentially going to be very problematic for them to do so if they have not only Joe Biden in the White House, but also Nancy Pelosi remaining as the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Of course, because uh, both of them want the UK to respect these international obligations. Yeah, it's not just that as well, but I mean, the, the United States and in particular Bill Clinton, who was also a part of the Democratic Party in the United States, was a key figure in bringing the Good Friday Agreement together as well. So um, they have a special interest in that. And, you know, to be honest, part of it's personal. Like Joe Biden has um, relations who are Irish as well. Has roots in uh, yeah Ireland. So we'll see what happens. Yes, Member states are also bound by the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, unlike the European Convention of Human Rights, um, which is not related to EU law and therefore will remain in place. The Charter is part of EU law. Thus, after the 1st of January 2021, it won't have any further application in the UK. So what will happen to the right conferred by the Charter? Um, to be honest, Sarah, like you said in your question itself, the Charter is different from the European Convention on Human Rights. And so the UK's relationship with the Convention is not going to change at all on the 31st of December or for the foreseeable future as well. And in many respects, the Charter, which is basically the EU's version of the Convention, mirrors it to such a great extent that I don't think there are there are too many differences. But realistically, I think that um, it's not going to have too big an effect on um, the UK's relationship with human rights law in general. Well, of course, we are not talking about striking down the Human Rights Act, which would have significant consequences on the protection of our human rights. But the Charter has contributed to the development of important third-generation rights, such as workers' rights and environmental rights, and has also permitted the development of data protection rights on which the GDPR legislation is based, and for example, the right to be forgotten on social media. So taking into account the growing role of human rights in trade agreements, I think it would be in the interest of the UK to develop its future human rights and workers' rights interpretation in a way that does not differ too much from the Court of Justice of the European Union's interpretation. Yeah, and I think I think that this is one of the interesting things. So we earlier we talked about things like the regulations that are going to be retained as part of UK law. And obviously one of those regulations, possibly the most famous regulation, is the GDPR, which most people we know as relating to things like data privacy. So we're going to be retaining that as part of the UK. Again, there's a question about whether the Parliament of the UK will want to amend that in some ways, whether that's to give people more rights in terms of their data privacy, or perhaps to strip some of those rights away so that it makes it easier to do a trade deal with somewhere like the US, where there are big tech companies like Google and Apple who may want greater access to data in return for a trade deal. 
But actually, that's why it's worrying. Um, I think it's an interesting question to surround it around human rights arguments. Again, I think it's something that, you know, whereas the right to privacy is maybe not something that's specifically recognized within the convention and might be more well protected by the charter, it's something where the UK courts have actually sort of stepped in and um, essentially granted a right to privacy within the common law um, via Article 8 of the convention, which is obviously um, the right mm-hmm. to a private life. And there is a sense that there is a right to privacy that's being created through the common law um, as a way of sort of getting around that. So, again, it's something where it will be interesting to see where things go and how things change over time. But I don't think that with the GDPR and obviously with the fallback of the European Convention, it's something that people need to be too worried about in the immediate Mm -hmm. term. Okay. So... Brexit was about getting back control and getting back the sovereignty conceded to EU institutions and the European Court of Justice. So will Brexit achieve that objective? I think that ultimately the answer to this question is yes. Uh, Brexit will create a resumption of sovereignty for the UK Parliament, maybe not in the exact way that certain hardcore Brexiteers want it to be. But at the moment, we are still heading towards a no-deal Brexit. And that means that there's going to be less of a role for things like the Court of Justice of the European Union to have a say on matters relating to UK law. Now, there is a question about whether this is sort of like a good thing or not, really. Um, They are getting this sovereignty and it's going to sort of be up to the UK Parliament to um, maybe amend things like the GDPR. But I think that there is also a question about at what cost we're doing this at. There are going to be political ramifications, as we've seen with the Internal Markets Bill when we talked about that, Mm -hmm. but also potentially economic ramifications as well if there is a no-deal Brexit and all of a sudden we have those trade barriers and um, customs tariffs that are going to sort of spring up and harm UK industry and UK businesses at the same time. I think it's when people are starting to be affected by this, whether it's people who want to go and live and work abroad in the EU, or if it's businesses who want to trade with the EU, whether there's going to be a reflection at that point and a question about, okay, we have this sovereignty, but, you know, that sovereignty isn't going to sort of pay my bills and keep my lighting on, you know, in my office or my Mm -hmm. flat or my house. So there is this sovereignty that we do have, but, you know, sovereignty doesn't keep the lights on. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for all this uh, great information. Now, I'd like to ask you a few questions about your career and your experience as a legal professional. So could you please tell us what you do? So talk about your job, but talk also if you want to about your podcast and your YouTube channel. And I'd like to know why you decided to create them. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. You know, at the moment, my job is working for Thomson Reuters, who produce Westlaw, which I think, you know, most law students are sort of very familiar with Westlaw, as well as many legal professionals as well, not only for the legislation side of things, which is where I work on Westlaw, but also as a case law and other sort of amazing analysis and work. My podcast is um, UK Law Weekly, which you've talked about. And you asked why I started it. I Mm -hmm. I think the reason for that is because, you know, once I sort of came out of academia, where I was maybe keeping much of a closer eye on what was happening in the courts and the Supreme Court, I was a bit worried that 
when I left that world that I was going to sort of leave behind this um, knowledge that I might have. The podcast really was originally just a way for me to personally to make sure that I read the latest judgments and kept up to date with the latest case law from the Supreme Court. Um, and I thought, well, at least a good way of sort of making sure that I did that was if I forced myself to do a podcast episode of it and it started to get a few listeners, mm -hmm. then I'd be forced to keeping track of the different case law because other people will be looking to that as well. So it started off very small and just really much of a personal project. And, you know, now it gets thousands of listeners a week. You know, it's often listed on the top 100 news and politics um, podcasts mm -hmm. on Apple iTunes, which is, you know, really amazing and something that I just never would have thought of when I started it about four years ago. I can say is that the cases are very well presented and the analysis is very interesting. Now, when did you decide that you wanted to work in the field of law and how did you get into the legal profession? I can give you the uh, the origin story, if you will. It's a little bit a little bit embarrassing. It probably sort of goes back to sort of when I was um, 17 or 18 mm -hmm. and was doing A-levels and thinking about what degree I wanted to do. And um, as a sort of money-hungry 17 or 18-year-old, I was like, well, I'm going to go and study law in London and become a really rich lawyer and have a massive house. And uh, it never really quite worked out like that because while I obviously did enjoy law and, you know, was quite happy to do it, that lifestyle of sort of working as a full-time lawyer in a big city firm and having to put in insane hours was just never very attractive. So that was kind of the origin story. And then I, I did enjoy law as an academic pursuit, even if I knew I wasn't going to pursue it in a practical way by becoming, say, a solicitor or a barrister. Mm -hmm. So I just ended up doing a master's and mm -hmm. really enjoyed sort of studying some of the deeper elements of law. I think you mentioned that my master's was in international, international law. law, but yeah, it was it was really about sort of mm -hmm. looking at things like the sociology and psychology of law. And mm -hmm. my master's dissertation is actually about aesthetics. So it's really looking at sort of like how art theory can be applied to law as well. So, you know, I, um, I ended up getting a job within a university that I was quite lucky to do. So I enjoyed doing mm -hmm. that. So could you tell us what have been your greatest successes so far and what have been your biggest hurdles and how how you've dealt with them? Uh, yeah, I suppose the greatest success is, is, is really just sort of, you know, having the opportunity to sort of come on podcasts like this. And, you know, I think you referred to me as a legal celebrity in the introduction, which I think was probably going to a little step too far. But I think, I think that might actually be my greatest success, actually, you saying that this evening. So maybe we've, maybe we've peaked. Um, yeah, I, th I think, I think it revolves around, you know, having the idea to start the YouTube channel, which again, again, like the podcast was really more of like a, a personal thing for me. It was more about, you know, how am I able to sort of help the students who I was working with mm -hmm. at the University of Huddersfield? And honestly, just putting the videos up on YouTube was the easiest way to do that. And when I moved on and decided that I wanted to carry on doing it, The channel soon grew and, you know, has achieved a relative degree of success at this stage. So mm -hmm. I think that's probably my sort of greatest success. There's, there's been a few hurdles along the way. You know, it's mm -hmm. thinking about how I can manage my time so I'm able to do my job in a full-time way, but also able to sort of keep the podcast going and keep YouTube going, but have a personal life. I think, you know, the way that I've overcome mm -hmm. that is just being realistic in terms of what I can mm -hmm. do. 
Okay. Have you got any special proud moment? So a moment where you felt extremely happy to work in the field of law? Yeah, I think there's been quite a few really. I, uh, when I was at Huddersfield, I, I won a teaching award mm -hmm. for my progress in terms of teaching students and helping them with different things. And that's certainly a, a very proud moment. Also, when I was working at the National Archives, we developed a system in terms of publishing legislation that means that instead of it taking a little while for the laws to appear online, they now go up within a matter of minutes. There's a very streamlined system for doing that. So in terms of access to legislation, that was a really important achievement for me. And then working with Westlaw as well, you know, working on all of this Brexit and of course, coronavirus legislation this year, it's, it's been a massive task. But, but again, that's something that I feel relatively proud of to help people to understand the law in a better way. Yes, absolutely. Um, what are your career ambitions for the future? Hopefully just sort of carry on as I am, really. The YouTube channel is still growing. You know, I was looking actually at the, this evening and there's been another 600 or so subscribers within the last month alone. So, you know, it continues to grow. And um, yeah. the same with the podcast, it tends to sort of travel by word of mouth. I'm always asking for people to, I'm sure you'll appreciate this as a podcaster, but to rate your favorite podcasts on iTunes because it, it makes a difference in terms of who sees them and how popular they are and how well they're promoted within the strange algorithm that Apple or Spotify has. Um, so just to hopefully continue growing those, you know, I'm working on contract law videos at the moment on the mm -hmm. YouTube channel, and I hope to maybe sort of develop a course on medical law as well within the next sort of year or so so trying to provide resources for students so for aspiring lawyers listening to this podcast is there a piece of advice you'd like to leave them with I think it's probably just don't make that mistake that I talked about earlier when I was sort of talking about going into the law for, you know, the reasons of just making as much money as I can. And, you know, I think you have to go in for the right reasons, mm -hmm. whether that's sort of you have a sense of justice that you want to achieve or it's something in your personal life that mm -hmm. inspires you to go into the law. Once you are within that field, make sure that you're doing something that you enjoy. Your career is huge part of your life within that time you feel that you're doing something valuable and contributing and so I think that that would be the main piece of advice that I would give to any aspiring lawyers absolutely well thank you very much for that can you tell our listeners where they can get in touch with you and uh, how they can find your work absolutely the um the best place to go is probably uklawweekly.com um, and if you go to that website, then you can also sign up for my mailing list. If you do that, you get a free ebook about answering problem questions. So if there are any students listening who are maybe struggling with problem questions or want a bit of advice, then head to uklawweekly.com and uh, put your email address in there. But that's also the best place to go for the latest podcast episodes. Um, if you are interested in that, then you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, all of the usual places for that. And then YouTube, you can either search for my name or it should just be youtube.com forward slash Marcus Cleaver. And um, you can subscribe to me there. Mm -hmm. I think you're so well known, Marcus, that even if they go to YouTube and just type law, one of your video will pop up anyway. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Marcus, it's been a real pleasure to have you on this podcast. We wish you all the best with your future project and many thanks for all the information you have shared with us today. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and uh, I've really enjoyed it. So thanks very much and all the best of luck with your own podcast as well. Thank you.
The information contained on this episode is not to be interpreted as legal advice, but is provided for informative purpose only. Formal legal advice should be sought for any specific case. Our guests are presenting their personal opinions in the context of an informal conversation and do not speak on behalf of their employers, partners, contractors or clients. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of A Question of Law. Your engagement with the show is at the heart of its success. The show has already received a fantastic amount of support and I'm really thankful for this. But the challenge is to keep you, the audience, engaged and fascinated. So if you have appreciated the show, please let me know by tuning in for the next one, rating and sharing the episodes and leaving comments. So until the next question of law, keep well.